Okay, I'm reading from Luke 20, 45 to 21. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Those men will be punished most severely. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her po poverty, put in all she had to live on. Some of the disciples were remarking about how the temple was adored with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when no one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, When will these things happen, and what will be the sign that you are about to take place? Sign that they are about to take place. He replied, Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Title, title of the sermon is Jesus Road to the Cross, Part 4. Not very creative. And uh, Jesus... Uh, the story of uh, Jesus told by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all very similar. Uh, they have about two-thirds of the material of the Gospels uh, on his, uh, largely on his ministry and the first 30 years of his life. And uh, one-third of the material is about one week of his life. And uh, they are just telling you by how much they give to that one week that that is the most important part of his life. And it's the key, really, to his time here on earth. And they all tell it the same way. He goes into the city, and on Friday, Thursday, he has a meal with his disciples in the evening. That evening, he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's arrested that night. He's put on trial very early the next morning. And 9 o'clock, he is put on the cross. 3 o'clock, he is dead. And by the time evening rolls around, he is in the tomb. And uh, that is the same way all four Gospels tell the story. Different ways, a little different material. But uh, that is the gist of the story. And it is the heart of Christianity that Jesus Christ goes to the cross and there he sheds his blood creating a new covenant with God and with men uh, giving us forgiveness of sins through his blood and yet on that Sunday he comes up out of the tomb showing that now we can have newness of life because we have a risen Savior he is not dead he is alive and he is reigning today he is seated at the right hand of God and he is there, sitting there, reigning, waiting for God to put all his enemies under his footstool, under his feet. Uh, that's where we're at. 
And uh, so this is one of those uh, steps on uh, the road to the cross, part of that last week of Jesus' life. And uh, let's get into it. Verse 45, Jesus is in the temple area, and uh, he is teaching throughout that week. And one of the teachings that he teaches that week is to beware of the religious leaders of the day. Verse 45, while all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. Beware lawyers. How do you like that? Beware the teachers of the law, or translated as scribes, those who write and those who copied the scriptures and those who uh, preserved it and discussed it. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. And he's got a number of things about their hypocrisy. Number one, they like to walk around in robes. They like it. They dress to impress. And the way they dress gains them instant respect. Um, I, I do appreciate that today is more casual. And uh, that uh, many people uh, dress the way I do. And uh, very casual-like and not trying to impress with clothing. Um, I appreciate that. Uh, in Jesus' day, they wore the best of clothes, and they did it on purpose so that people would see the clothes and be impressed with the person. All about show, not about character, content. Number two, they love greetings in the marketplace. They love it when people know who they are and that people want to talk to them. They love their popularity and their fame. People want to know them and greet them. Today, it would, be, it would be worried about how many likes you have on Facebook. By the way, if you sign up on Facebook to be my friend, I will no longer accept any friends. I have six. And unfortunately, my, my daughter told me I can turn off notifications. But I, I haven't turned off notifications. And so the six friends I have, about every three hours I get a notice on my phone. They posted something on their Facebook page. So then I have to go into my phone and delete the notice. <laughs> so if you sign up to be my friend, I'm not going to friend you back. I can't take any more people sending me notifications about what they're posting on, on Facebook for the day. I'm not trying to be mean. I just Usually it's Maria Robinson that I get the most from. <laughs> my place. Uh, that's important to people. How many likes they have on Facebook and who has the largest followings on Twitter and the most readers of their blogs and the most subscribers to their video channels. And of course some, some people are making money from those things. But, but they take that seriously and it makes them feel important because, because that's what they have. And that would be like in Jesus' day. Being known in the marketplace and being greeted. And uh, they love that. They ate that up. And number three, he says they love the most prominent seats in the synagogues. 
the fact that they would sit at the front where everyone would know who they are. When I was a kid, uh, the pastor and the song leader and the other pastors sat on the platform. I remember as a kid, boy, watching the bigwigs up there. Uh, For a couple of years, we attended Highland Park Baptist Church in Tennessee. At the time, it was the third largest church in the world. Had 12,000 in attendance. And today, 12,000 is small. But at that time, that was huge. And and we usually sat on the second row. And I remember sitting on the second row as a kid, and, and you would see the six people sitting at the front, and you would go, wow, those are all these spiritual people. You would think that. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes loved the best seats so that everyone could see them and think that they were important. I always wanted to sit in the balcony. I don't know why my dad wanted us to sit on the second row. but uh, They loved the best seats at banquets and feasts. Um, Joanne and I, uh, when we go to weddings, we know which table we're going to sit at. It's the relatives that they don't want sitting at the important tables. The crazy uncle, that's who we sit with. So if, if, you're, if you're seated with us somewhere, you know that's not good. <laughs> but they loved the best seats at banquets. That was important to them. And again, feeding their ego. And then the, ne- the next thing he says is, is, is showing you just how terrible they are. They devour widows' houses. Devour widows' houses. Kind of like eat it up. That's who, that's who feeds them and who gives them money and who have the soft touch. And that's who they go for. Uh, those who are at the bottom and most vulnerable. Um, I wasn't going to say this, but, but, do, but let me say this. If, if someone sends you an email or phones you and asking you for money or telling you they're from Revenue Canada and uh, you're not sure, please give us a call at the church, right? Um, you're probably being pranked, and you're probab- someone's probably trying to steal something from you. And it happens to a lot of us, right? You have to be very careful. And uh, if there's any question, please uh, we, we, we call us, and we'll try to get to the bottom of it. There are people out there who are just trying to steal from you and defraud you. And uh, the scribes did that. Number six, and for a show, they make lengthy prayers. They pray very long prayers. And they do that on purpose. They pray long prayers so that you think they are extra spiritual and you think they're close to God. They pray long prayers that you think they care about people and their problems. They pray long prayers to communicate information to people who are listening. And they only pray long prayers so that it's in public and it can be seen. That's pretext and show. I love the way Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation. Wow, how can that be a prayer? It's only 20 seconds long. I think that's the point. It doesn't have to be a long prayer to be a great prayer. But they prayed a long time so that it would look good and they would look good. And so Jesus says they will receive greater judgment. After all, Jesus is the one who will be judging them. And now he's telling you the basis of that judgment. And they're going to get it the worst. They will receive 
greater judgment. So check your motives. Number two, the offering. Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I guess it used to be wonderful in uh, Jesus' day when you had to give your when you had to give your gifts. Everyone knew how much you were giving because uh, it would be in quantity. And uh, if you were going to give in silver coins, they would be big coins, and there would have to be a lot of them. Um, the British pound is based on a pound of silver, right? Imagine if you were if if everyone here were to give us a pound this week, a pound of silver. Uh, we, we would have a nice little stack of silver up here. When you give it in paper money, it just doesn't look the same. And so the wealthy are coming, and they're throwing in these huge quantities of coins into the box. Looks big, sounds big, and quite impressive. And along comes a widow, a poor widow, and she gives two small copper coins, one 128th of a denarius, Denarius was a silver Roman coin, was worth one day's wages. And she's putting in two small coins worth uh, one 128th, about the same two pennies. She's putting in two pennies. Looks insignificant. And Jesus says she put in more than the rest. Notice exactly what he says. These people gave their gifts out of their wealth. She, out of her poverty or out of her lack, put in all she had to live in, or she, she put in all of her life. It's impressive. It's impressive. Not only does she give all the money she has. If I were her, I would have kept one, right? Lord, I'll give you 50%. How many of you think that's pretty good? Okay. All of, the, all of you who didn't raise your hand, you're a liar. <laughs> 50% is good. She doesn't give one and keep back one. You know something? I need to buy something for supper. I need a loaf of bread tonight. She puts in both. I've, I've, talked, I've talked about this before. This is before government pensions. She has no money coming in next month. She's put in everything. Striking. Uh, a number of years ago, we, uh, we replaced our lawn tractor. We bought a new lawn tractor. And uh, we had it a couple of weeks. Someone saw that we had a new lawn tractor and stole the lawn tractor. And uh, insurance replaced it. And Bud, Bud did a fix-up on the door, so now we have great security on the door. I can hardly get into it. <laughs> but nobody has stolen the lawn tractor since. Uh, we were raising money for the lawn tractor, and uh, the congregation wasn't very large. And I, I forget what we needed. I think we needed $3,000 or something like that. And um, we had one, one widow, Elsie Lumley. And uh, how many of you remember Elsie? Some of you? Bud, do you remember, you remember Elsie? Oh, Ethel Lumley. I don't even remember her. Ethel Lumley, your cousin. Everybody I met was her cousin. She, she came up to me one week. She was very excited. She goes, Pastor, you're related to me. I go, what? She goes, yeah, your cousin once removed, married one of my cousins once removed, so we're family. Ethel, Ethel uh, for some reason, she, she had worked on a farm. Her and her husband had lived on a farm. So they had never paid Canada pension, so she received no Canada pension as a senior. So she was poor, right? She had nothing. And uh, we were trying to raise money for the lawn tractor, and she gave her entire old age security and her guaranteed income supplement for the month. 
so we could buy a lawn tractor. Literally, she gave all of her living for the month. Her daughter was upset about it. <laughs> said, said, Pastor, like she can't afford to give you that. Like she has given you everything. And I said, yeah, I wish, I wish she hadn't. But I said, I, I don't, I don't want to take away from her generosity and her willingness to give. But I, I, I still remember that a generous, poor widow who has nothing and the church needs a lawn tractor and she gives generously so that we can have a lawn tractor. So for a long time, I wouldn't tell anybody if we had any financial needs in the church. I was afraid she would give money. God loves our heart, and God loves our attitude. Two or three weeks ago, I mentioned uh, Gospel for Asia. I'm gonna, I'll mention it again. Um, she's giving to a temple system where the top is corrupt, and they are living exorbitant lifestyles, and they live in huge mansions. And the priests down at the, bo at the bottom are very poor. The top chief priests are very wealthy. And uh, here she is putting in money, kind of supporting that system, but that's not the way God sees it. God sees it as she's being generous and she's giving to him. Um, in 2014 and 2015, our church gave money to Gospel for Asia. And uh, at, at one time, our church was one of the largest givers in Canada to Gospel for Asia. And I just found out this past week that what happened with our money was it went into an account in Royal Bank here in Canada, and all the money raised in Canada, they transferred it to another Gospel for Asia account in Canada for India. It had millions, at least 20 million. United States wanted to build a new headquarters, and it was costing tens of millions of dollars. And so what they did was they had Gospel for Asia India at the Royal Bank in Canada transfer $20 million to the United States so they could build their new headquarters. Meanwhile, all the money that we had given for missionaries, none had been sent to India. Zero in 2014-2015. It was all transferred to a Gospel for Asia India account sent to the United States to build their headquarters. That got me even more mad. <laughs> as, if, as if the United States needs us to build their headquarters and their fancy headquarters. Um, anyways, this came up at the trial. This is part of what they were being sued for. They're defrauding of people. And the lawyer for Gospel for Asia said, well, this shouldn't come up at trial because this has nothing to do with American donors. In other words, it's not American donors who are, who are being messed around with. This is Canadian donors, and it doesn't matter what happens to them. The judge, of course, did, would not accept that. He goes, it doesn't matter, you're defrauding people. And uh, anyways, what a, what a mess and what a schmozzle. I thank God that when we give our money, we have to be responsible. We have to know what we're doing. But we are not completely responsible. We give out of a generous heart, and we give with good motives, and that's what God sees, and he loves that. Uh, verse 5. Some of his disciples remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones, with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, When will these things happen? And what will be the sign they are about to take place? 
Peter, Peter Anglican uh, student from India at Lambton College. And Peter was asking me, uh, Pastor, what's the difference between the Gospels? Good question, Peter. I gave him an answer. Uh, let, me give you an, let me give you an answer to that. What's the difference between the Gospels? In general, Luke is the least specific of all the Gospels because he did not live in Judea or Galilee. He did not live in Israel. He was a Gentile, and he did not live in the time of Jesus. He never met Jesus and uh, did not live in Judea at the time where these things happened. He was a Gentile, became a traveler with Paul, and through his research, he decided to write the story of the gospel so that those who were Gentiles could read about the story too. So as you read Luke, he's the least specific. He's never been there. Mark is the most colorful of the gospel storytellers. He lived there. He lived in Jerusalem. It was his house where the upper room was. Uh, when the early church met and they met for prayer, they met in Mark's mother's house. Uh, so Mark knew that well, and uh, he was a friend of Peter. And so when he writes his gospel, you can kind of like smell the earth. <laughs> you can hear the birds sing. He's very colorful as he tells the story. Matthew is the most theological of the storytellers. He tells you the theology behind it, and he, so he gives you most of Jesus' sermons. Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew. The Olivet Discourse, which Luke has here, but the longer version is in Matthew. The Sermon on the Kingdom of God, Matthew 13. He has these long sermons, theological sermons, that's found in Matthew. And he always quotes from the Old Testament. Matthew does that more than the other gospel writers. Matthew is the most popular gospel in the early church. Now I say that to say this. Uh, the different writers tell you different things. So when Matthew starts off this sermon, Jesus says, Not one stone will be left on another. Every stone will be thrown down. The disciples ask this question. Matthew. When will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming? And when is the end of the age? Three questions. When will the temple be destroyed? When will Jesus come? And what will be the end of the age? Three questions. Jesus answers all three questions. They are different times. That makes it very confusing. Uh, the temple in Jerusalem was beautiful. And as Jesus gives this sermon, they are sitting on the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is to the east of Jerusalem, to the east of the Temple Mount. And you can look down onto the Temple Mount and you can see it there. In fact, you can see the temple from any, every, anywhere in Jerusalem. It was huge. It was beautiful. And this temple is called the Second Temple, built in 516. Uh, so here's a building that has been around for 550 years. There's no building in Canada that's been around for 550 years. Not one, right? That would be the year 1520. What was here in 1520? <laughs> Trees. <laughs> native, native, native villages, First Nation villages. Not First Nation, yeah. Not then it wasn't First Nation. Yeah. No, no stone buildings. No cement. Uh, not, nothing, nothing that has lasted. 
Herod began to rebuild the temple in 20 B.C. or 20 B.C.E. 20 B.C. he began to rebuild this temple and it would go on being rebuilt for 80 years. And so Jesus and his disciples are looking at this building that's been under construction for 50 years and it is staggering in its beauty. By the way, a lot of that construction still lasts today. The Western Wall, Herod built that. Herod built that, 2,000 years old. And so Herod built that, it's, it, it was actually the retaining wall, not the wall of the temple, the retaining wall that would hold in the huge platform on which the temple sat. Josephus says that some of the stones in the temple, and I, I, I went back to get the exact dimensions that Josephus said that there was. He said that there were stones that were 67 feet long, 12 feet high, and 18 feet wide. 67 foot long stone, 12 feet high and 18 feet wide. Mammoth stones. I, I don't even know how they would have moved it. And they used white marble. I think they brought it from Egypt. I, I, I'm not sure about that. I used, to, I used to have that in my notes. But it was made from white marble. And you could see it from a distance. This bright white temple. And it was huge. Adorned with gold and draperies and, and just beautifully adorned. And they are there looking at it. One of the most beautiful sights in the world. And they're going, teacher, look at this. And look at how wonderful it is. And uh, how beautiful it is. And Jesus says, uh, none of it's going to last. Not one stone will be left on another. It will all be torn down. And they finished building it in the 60s. And it was torn down in, the, in 1970. No, not 70, 70. Finished building it in the 60s, torn down in 70. He said, not one stone will be left on another. There was gold that adorned the building, and uh, the Romans accidentally set fire to the temple. It burned. The gold melted, ran down between the cracks of the stones. Uh, Roman soldiers don't get paid very much, but when there's gold between stones, they'll move stones. And they did. They took the gold, and not one stone was left on another. So they asked him, this is striking. This temple's going to be torn down. Nothing's going to be left. When is it going to happen? One of the claims that keeps coming up with Jesus at his trial is that Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And destroying a temple in the ancient world, that was about the worst crime that you could commit. Temples were banks, so you were destroying the financial system. Temples usually secured important documents, so you're, you're destroying important documents that people have, and you're destroying religion. And people like, like to think of themselves as being theological, even though they believed in many gods. Destroying a temple was the worst possible thing. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And, and of course, everybody's thinking, this is ridiculous. You see how big the stone is? It's 67 feet long. It's 12 feet high and 18 feet wide. You're going you're gonna to raise this temple in three days. You could hear that and you could just hear them thinking, this is ridiculous. He's saying something that is crazy talk. But I believe that Jesus was telling the exact truth, but with a double entendre meaning. In the Bible, there's one interpretation, one right interpretation, many applications, only one right interpretation. For the right interpretation, please ask me. That's a joke, right? But there is only one right. 
Only one person can be right. But when Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, he has two meanings deliberately. Meaning one, destroy this temple, meaning his body, and in three days he will raise it up. That's exactly what he does. You destroy this body, in three days I will raise it up. And he comes up out of the tomb. But when you destroy Jesus' body and he hangs on that cross, the temple, it's no longer necessary. You have now rendered the temple obsolete. You don't have to go through that curtain into the most holy place anymore with blood. That's done. Jesus has paid that price. All of our sins are washed away. We're all right with God. We all can come into his presence freely through the grace and the, through the, by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the temple literally has been destroyed. It, it's useless now. Now it's just a bunch of big rocks. And in three days when he came up out of the tomb, we now have a new and living way to get to God through Jesus Christ. The only way today, because the, he has destroyed the temple. It's no longer any good. Uh, this morning, how are you coming to Jesus? How are you coming to God? Is it through Jesus Christ? Or are you doing it on your own efforts, through your own goodness? That will not work. It won't. First of all, your goodness isn't good enough. I know you well enough. You know me well enough. My goodness isn't good enough. I need the goodness and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And your sins are too vile. You need to have them washed away. And the blood of Jesus Christ does that. Come to him through Christ.